passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to our UFC 222 post show here at postwrestling.com. I'm John Pollock. Thank you for tuning into the show. This is a free one for everybody off the post wrestling network of shows. Uh, so thanks for tuning in. We're going to be going through Saturday's show from the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, Nevada. It was a card that saw uh, some big changes uh, about a month out from the card where this was supposed to feature Frankie Edgar challenging Max Holloway for the featherweight championship. And for the second time uh, since December, that fight fell apart. In December, it was Frankie Edgar getting hurt. This time around, it was Max Holloway injuring himself, putting that fight to the sidelines. So rather than Frankie Edgar sitting on the sidelines and awaiting Max Holloway to get healthy, he said he wanted to fight on this card, and the opponent presented was a very tough one in Brian Ortega. And this, to me, was the most intriguing fight going into this card. Did not disappoint, and I think a lot of respect given to Frankie Edgar, the fact that he took this fight even though he could have gambled with his title shot by remaining dormant this month and hoping that Max Holloway would be good to go in a month or two and he would be the next challenger. In theory, that's how it would work. But as we have seen with UFC title opportunities, theories don't always match up with reality, and there isn't the guarantee Frankie Edgar would have gotten that title fight. But that fight was the kind of remnants of our championship fight that was supposed to headline this card. That alone wouldn't have been able to headline a pay-per-view in my estimation. What was able to was Chris Cyborg, Justino, stepping in on short notice and willing to defend her featherweight title against Invicta bantamweight champion Yana Kunitskaya, who also took this fight on short notice, though it should be noted she had not only been preparing to move up to featherweight, but she had been scheduled to fight the week prior where she was going to be the one that would be taking on Sarah McMahon. And instead, it was Marion Renault who filled in that vacancy. And going back a week ago, it was Marion Renault getting her arm raised in that fight. So Yana Kunitskaya takes the title fight. It's enough that they can proceed forward with a pay per view. And this card is one of the more intriguing pay per view numbers in a while. Because back at UFC 219, that was a surprisingly well-purchased pay-per-view. It featured Chris Cyborg and a big opponent in Holly Holm. One could argue Holly Holm would trump Marluz Kunin as the toughest woman that Chris Cyborg has ever fought. And she went five rounds, had her arm raised. That, that show also had the benefit of Habib Nurmagomedov fighting on the card, and, of course, Cyborg having a, a more marketable, well-known opponent in Holly Holm, who has shown a history of being able to draw, but in different circumstances. We had Holly Holm, of course, coming off of that Ronda Rousey victory. She was then a big part of UFC 196, taking on Misha Tate, but, of course, that 
card was largely credited to the main event that was Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz. Nonetheless, even if you're not going to give Holly Holm credit or at least any credit for that pay-per-view, a lot of people saw Holly Holm just as a lot of people saw Holly Holm against Ronda Rousey the prior November. You fast forward to the Valentina Shevchenko fight and Holly Holm pulled in a very strong number against an unknown opponent on Fox. So Holly Holm has some drawing juice behind her. I think Chris Cyborg does as well. This card, though, it's all on Chris Cyborg, in my opinion. Brian Ortega and Frankie Edgar, I don't think they would have gone ahead with a pay-per-view. I think that that fight alone forces this to be an FS1 card. I don't think you could have gone ahead with uh, Arlovsky-Stefan Struve as your second biggest fight on that main card, along with Sean O'Malley and Andre Sukumtov. So this show, if this does well, and by well, I would say north of 250,000 buys, I think that that should be a feather in Chris Cyborg's cap that she can not only headline with the right opponent, she can headline with no opponent, which, all due respect to Yana Kunitskaya, nobody uh, very few were aware of the Invicta Bantamweight champion going into this card. Uh, so let's let's uh, rewind. We're going to start at the beginning of the show, work our way up to the main event. Uh, we had an announced attendance of 12,041 at the T-Mobile Arena and a live gate of $1,367,672. Opened up on Fight Pass with Jordan Johnson and... Adam Milstead, and this was a fight that, uh, surprising to me, ended up going the full 15, and this was our first of five split decisions on this card. I gave Adam Milstead the opening round, landed a, a counter right, and seemed to have the timing down pretty well when Johnson would throw, and then Milstead landed an elbow off the fence, kind of punctuated the round for him. Second round, though, it was the story of Jordan Johnson and his clinch work. Uh, he was landing his jab at the start of the round, and then when he would clinch, very active uh, with his clinch. And at one point, Mark Smith separates them. And this is when Johnson is being very active, and Joe Rogan very annoyed at this decision by referee Mark Smith, stating that that is a, a, a not a dominant position, but that is an advantageous position for Jordan Johnson, who is being active. He is not riding the clock. He is being active, and he is landing in the clinch. Uh, Milstead would land with a right near the end, and then Johnson got a takedown at the end, and they went back to the clinch and got another separation before the end of the second. Into the third, very close round here. Milstead did land a big right to the head, and a knee from the clinch was uh, returned by Johnson. Johnson then using his left counters, jabs, and then got a single leg takedown right near the end. Milstead did end the round strong with a few big shots. Not enough, in my opinion, to win the round. So I scored it 29-28 for Jordan Johnson. Referees had it 29-28, two judges having that score in favor of Johnson. And then one had it 30-27 at a Milstead, which is um, not a great card. Not when that second round was a clear Jordan Johnson round. I gave the first to him. I think you could argue the third. He ended the round strong, but a 30-27, that's a, that's a tough one to go. I can go 29-28 Milstead, but nothing more. Right guy won. Jordan Johnson improves to 9-0, and and he was stunned afterwards, speaking to Joe Rogan, that any round went to Adam Milstead, uh, not even conceding the first. So then we go to... Cody Stamen and the returning Brian Caraway, who has been gone for a very long time. His last fight was May of 2016, and that was a lifetime ago. That was a different ownership group of the UFC, and he had been coming off wins over Eddie Wineland and Aljamain Sterling. But inactivity had really 
um, put him into relative obscurity in the bantamweight division and getting a tough opponent in the 16-1 and Cody Stamen. First round, great round for Brian Caraway. If there was any concern over his time away and different when you're still training, you're still active versus being in an actual fight in that environment and performing on the stage at hand. And Caraway looked great in this round. Uh, he put Stamen against the fence, landed a short right uppercut, got a single leg takedown into half guard. I mean, his passes were really on point in this fight when he was able to get top position and his ability just to move. Uh, he did go for a Kimura at the end, and there was even a, a knee that landed where uh, Stamen was clearly down but uh, went unchecked. And I don't think uh, Daniel Cormier was going to touch this one this week after all he went through last week over the uh, the Jeremy Stevens-Josh Emmett fight. Second round saw Stamen landing with a counter left hook, also landing with his right, and defended the takedowns well. Uh Second round, clearly for Stamen. And then in the third, really close round. I'll tell you, a second fight broke out during this one where Joe Rogan and Daniel Cormier just started to massacre referee Adelaide Bird. They were very concerned that this woman was scoring this fight. And she of the uh, Canelo Alvarez Triple G fight of last year, um, someone that has certainly gotten her uh, justifiable criticism for some of her scorecards, some of which would be present on this show. We'll get to that later. Uh, second round, er, th- sorry, the third, they battled in the clinch. Caraway landed some really big shots and went for a rolling guillotine right at the end. Uh, I had it 29-28 for Brian Caraway. Uh, we had, or sorry, I had, yeah, I did. I had 29-28 for Caraway, giving him the first and the third. Cody Stamen, though, wins by split decision with two 29-28s in his favor and one having it 29-28 for Caraway. So thus far, we're two split decisions in, and I would say we had a, well, we had one that agreed with me and one that did not. But Cody Stamen uh, wins the fight, improves to 17-1, and one, but I thought Brian Caraway looked very good here, and even with a loss, um, got back onto things. He's still only 33 years of age, and he is someone that has been throwing so much criticism along his career. This is a very competent bantamweight that I think if he could go on a real active run, and by active, I mean fighting two to three times a year, I think he could gain a lot of steam at 135 pounds, and I almost took this as this was still a step forward for Brian Caraway, who looked very good against a tough, unknown opponent in Cody Stamen. Final fight on Fight Pass was Mike Pyle in his retirement bout, which he announced Monday on the MMA Hour, taking on 31-year-old Zach Otto, 11 years his junior in a welterweight bout. Otto was throwing wildly after landing with a leg kick early on, and then he set up the fight-ending right hand with a leg kick, drops Pyle with the right hand, and swarmed him with strikes. Referee stops the fight. And Zach Otto wins by TKO at 234 of the first round. Not a not a Cinderella story ending for Mike Pyle's career, but gave a very emotional interview afterwards with Joe Rogan. Just loved his career. And it was funny. If you listen to his interview with Ariel Hawani this past Monday where he announced his retirement, he seemed pretty fine about this retirement. It wasn't an emotional thing. It wasn't this big separation in his life. But I think watching enough fighters, it was not surprising to see him have this reaction in the moment where he was reduced to tears and clearly saw this as the end. He's 42 years old now. I, I'm i always torn sometimes with fights like this. You want to see a guy go out with a positive note, but sometimes that can be very 
that can be very limiting in your post-fight career because you're always going back to that moment and you're thinking, man, I look great in that last fight. I had a wonderful moment. How much more was left? Did I leave it all out there? Mike Pyle can have the satisfaction to know he was beat soundly in this last fight. This chapter of his life is over and it forces you to move on to the next stage of your life. And he's doing uh, a lot of stunt work. He, all fighters need to find that next, that next path in their careers because fighting is only going to last you so long. For Mike Pyle, it lasted him over 20 years and he should be incredibly proud of the resume he put together, uh, having fought uh, well over 40 times. Uh, you know, he's listed as having 42 professional fights. He's indicated he's fought many more than that. Uh, he's had a very long career. And sometimes this is the best way to go out because it doesn't leave any doubt in your mind as to your effectiveness as a, as a fighter. And you're not going to have any doubts about that retirement. So it might sound callous, but sometimes that is necessary. Having spoken to enough fighters who it's a very hard uh, decision to make to, to leave this profession, especially one who's done it for as long as Mike Pyle has. That's been his life for over 20 years. We move on to the televised prelim. C.B. Dalloway took on Hector Lombard at middleweight. Uh, C.B. Dalloway had one of the craziest injuries I can ever recall. I was there in Cleveland at UFC 203, and the day before his fight, he was in an elevator, and I was not at the fighter hotel, but I was told this this hotel was just awful. This uh, elevator system was brutal, and it ended with a number of guys in the elevator, and it crashed. It fell down and crashed, causing Dalloway this significant back injury. And he's had a lot of problems uh, since then. He has fought. He did fight in July of last year. He's coming off a uh, a decision victory over Ed Herman uh, and was taking on Hector Lombard here, who has had an awful run. He's lost four straight heading into this fight, three of those at middleweight was fighting at welterweight prior. And Dalloway landed a clean kick to the body early, and that seemed to be the game plan, break down the body of Hector Lombard. But Lombard started catching kicks and throwing with the right hand and was sizing up Dalloway. And then the buzzer sounds. And right as the buzzer sounds, Lombard drops him with this right-left-hand combination that was... You can... I'm not going to say state that he was just being absolutely malicious here. I have no doubt that he was sizing up this combination and was hoping to beat the buzzer before the end. I mean, you hear the clapper and you can never expect every fighter to be uh, cognizant of all that's going on around them when they're in a fist fight that you're going to be acknowledging the clapper. Um, But this was clearly landed after the buzzer and they referred to the instant replay because in Nevada, while they have not adopted the new rules uh, from the ABC, they do have limited use of replay. And it's it can only be used once the fight is over. This was done. Dalloway went down from this combination and he was rocked. He got up and he was in another country. He ended up having to be stretchered out. There was no way this fight was continuing. And they made the call that it was d- the the fight ending blows were after the completion of the round and CB Dalloway won by disqualification at the end of the first round. So a loss nonetheless for Hector Lombard that would make five consecutive losses for the 40-year-old and CB Dalloway gets a win. It's a win with an asterisk, but it is still going to go down as a victory for him and he like you have not seen a guy this 
messed up from a knockout in quite some time. I mean, this was uh, – he was taken to a hospital right afterwards. Like, he had no idea where he was. He was constantly asking what happened. He was done. He was done, and had this happened 10 seconds earlier, this would have been a big Hector Lombard knockout victory. John Dodson versus Pedro Munoz, take two. They were supposed to fight earlier um, in February in Brazil. Pedro Munoz missed weight, so they rebooked it for this Saturday night, and this is the final fight on Dodson's current UFC contract, so he was going in uh, with some pressure. Early on in the first, Dodson was just so much faster. He landed a knee to the body, worked with his jab, um, looked very good in the first round, and was just going to be too quick, it seemed like, for Munoz. Into the second, uh, Munoz is having trouble keeping up with Dodson. Uh, Dodson starts bleeding from the nose, but landed an uppercut, and then there's a hard left to the body by Dodson, and At the end of the round, Munoz front kicks him uh, low. Time was called, but they quickly resumed. And uh, close round in the second. Munoz came on near the end, landed with some of his right hands. In the third round, it was noted that Dodson was only using his left hand. He is an orthodox fighter, but showing in this fight uh, can throw with both hands. And the concern was, and Pedro Munoz's corner even picked up on this fact he was only using the left hand, was was there a problem with the right hand, which he would indicate later the right hand was fine. He just wanted to showcase his left. Dodson hit this beautiful triple jab in the third. Uh, keeps landing with the left. Munoz went for a flying knee, got a takedown off the fence with a minute left, and was throwing knees to the body, and they had an exchange in the final seconds. Good fight between these two. John Dodson won by split decision. 29-28, 30-27, and one having it 29-28 for Munoz. I scored all three rounds for Dodson. I could certainly make a case for the second going to Munoz, uh, so you can go 29-28, but I think first and third, Dodson sealed it. So... Victory for John Dodson, his 20th professional win, and I would think comes back to the UFC. I don't see him exploring elsewhere, unless Bellator is very aggressive going after a bantamweight like John Dodson. However, um, got a win here over a, a good quality bantamweight, and I would imagine John Dodson will will stay put. Benil Dariush took on Alexander Hernandez at 155 pounds next. Alexander Hernandez was a late-minute replacement for Bobby Green, who got hurt uh, just about a week or two ago. And Hernandez, an 8-1 and fighter that not too many people were aware of. Uh, this guy coming in, uh, one, of, uh, one of the non-Wikipedia entry fighters. So that, that's always telling. But Alexander Hernandez had other plans. He started this fight off. First of all, it's one thing to come in and you're just taking on a, a lower-ranked lightweight. This is Benil Dariush, who is one of the... More underrated lightweights uh, has had a really strong run that it feels no one is aware of. You know, eight three and one in the UFC coming into this fight, and was just coming off a majority decision victory over Evan Dunham, who is no slouch at 155 pounds. So anyway, Hernandez comes in and he puts his hand out to tap gloves, faked him, and hit a front kick to the body. There was no screwing around for Alexander Hernandez, who was ultra aggressive immediately. Dariush was calm. He wasn't distracted by any of these antics. Hit a leg kick, and it looked like Dariush was just going to settle into his kind of striking game. But then out of nowhere, Hernandez dropped some cold with a left hook, and Dariush was out. Just flatlined on the canvas, and Hernandez finished him in 42 seconds by knockout. This was one of the big performances of the entire card, and Alexander Hernandez did a great interview after the fight with Joe Rogan, stating he had arrived, and 
man, made a huge impact for himself in one of the most bloated divisions in the sport, the UFC's lightweight division. And he advances significantly by beating someone on the level of Benil Dariush in his opening fight. So Alexander Hernandez really standing out on this card. Uh, you can question uh, the sportsmanlike of the opening of that particular fight. Uh, but nonetheless, Alexander Hernandez... Uh, you can't really fault the outcome, which was a solid knockout victory under a minute over a big lightweight in Benil Dariush. Televised prelims were headlined by Ashley Yoder taking on the highly touted Mackenzie Dern, who was one of the biggest favorites on this card, not the biggest, uh, came in a minus 450 favorite. Uh, Ashley Yoder, 5-3 and three fighter. And we started off with Mackenzie Dern not shooting for the takedown. This is a... a tremendous uh, jiu-jitsu practitioner, but it was her striking she wanted to show off in the first round, and she would clinch, and she would throw these wild shots that, I mean, she is self-admittedly not a striker, and her striking has a lot to be desired to the point that, I mean, Ashley Yoder was figuring her out in the second round, and all credit to Ashley Yoder, but Mackenzie Dern uh, in the UFC strawweight division, which may not even be the best division for her. She has had a lot of trouble in the past making 115. She was the last fighter to weigh in on Friday. So she goes through an arduous process before ever getting into the cage to make 115. And you wonder, how much are you sacrificing size-wise versus what are you benefiting from health-wise by fighting at 125 pounds where that's now an option for the women? We had complained about it for so long that a fighter like Mackenzie Dern two years ago, yeah, you're going to force yourself to get to 115 because 135 is crazy to be going 20 pounds higher. Now you have a bridge with 125, so it would not surprise me at all that Mackenzie Dern uh, finds her ultimate success at 125. However, her striking... It needs a lot of work because a competent striker is going to massacre this woman. Uh, her hands are down. She's just throwing crazy. Um, but was landing uh, partially uh, throughout this. Put Yoder against the fence. Uh, Yoder did land with a left hand at the end. This was definitely Dern's round in the first. Second round, though, it was all Ashley Yoder. She connected with a left hand and was just landing frequently with that left hand. Very little defense from Mackenzie Dern. Uh, during an exchange, Yoder did put her down to a knee. Dern came back and cut Yoder by the right eye, uh, and Yoder blocked the takedown. The early portion of this fight, it was a credit to Ashley Yoder for being able to block takedowns and clearly drilling that significantly knowing Mackenzie Dern's um, expertise on the ground. In the third, Dern did land with a right hand, shot for a single unsuccessfully, finally got a takedown late in the fight, took Yoder's back instantly, had a hook in, and it was just uh, watching a magician here as she got her second hook in, fought for the choke, and Yoder did fight the choke off. It was a big finish for Mackenzie Dern. I had it 29-28. Most people would score this fight 29-28. It was a very easy fight to score. But... We got another split decision. Somehow, there was a 29-28 for Ashley Yoder. And behind door number 29-28, Adelaide Bird, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UFC 222. I will not complain too much because the right person won this fight, Mackenzie Dern, but how anyone scores this fight, anything but 29-28, preposterous. We now move on to the pay-per-view portion. Uh, female bout at bantamweight with the returning Kat Zingano, who has been inactive since UFC 200, all the way back in July 2016, taking on undefeated Ketlin Vieta. And she is 
Uh, been on a roll in the UFC's women's bantamweight division. Uh, beat Kelly Fashholes, Ashley Evans-Smith, and then her biggest win was submitting Sarah McMahon last September at UFC 215. Kat Zingano, though, would represent uh, an even bigger win, uh, being another uh, former title challenger to former champion Ronda Rousey. First round... This was interesting. Vieta was landing a lot of counters, but Zingano was landing quite a bit here with her right hands. And the commentary really didn't reflect, in my opinion, what Zingano was doing. And it just seemed so focused on what Vieta was doing in retaliation, but not enough initiation by Zingano and strikes that were landing. Um, at the end, Vieta got the takedown and ended the round in half guard. So I gave the first round to Vieta, but was a close round. And you didn't get that sense. Like, go back and watch the first two minutes of this round and watch it on mute, watching Kat Zingano's output, and then watch the first two minutes with the commentary on. And it, to me, told a very different story. And that's not to say Vieta wasn't doing anything either. She was countering. She was landing. But that wasn't the full view of the fight. Second round, there was this beautiful throw by Vieta into Mount, took Zingano's back, was working for the arm triangle, but Zingano was, uh, you know, relentless off her back. She escaped from that awful position, but Vieta was able to stay in half guard and remained in this position until right near the end of the round. Uh, Much clearer round to score with Vieta winning the second. And then in the third, Zingano comes out strong with a head kick, is throwing with her right hands. She threw an inside leg kick and appeared to have hurt her leg from it being checked. And Vieta pounced on her, took her down. Vieta got on top. Zingano was by the fence. Uh, Zingano gets out and backed her feet, putting Vieta against the fence. And then Zingano just throws wildly at the end of the round and did land a big shot. Still thought it was Vieta's round, so I scored it. I, I think that the if you're going to give a round to Zingano, it's the third round. But I just thought with the position control, I leaned Vieta in the third. However, Zingano landed some good strikes, and I I could see that round going to Zingano. Went to the judges' scorecards. Another split decision. Ketlin Vieta wins. One judge, Marcos Rosales, scored it 29-28 for Zingano. I'm fine if you want to give the third round to Zingano. The first round, though, it was close. I'm not going to call it. This was not an Adelaide Bird, Ashley Yoder card. This wasn't awful. Um... You had you had close rounds in the first and the third, but I, I felt very confident in Ketlin Vieta winning this fight. Minimum twenty nine twenty eight, and I think you could go thirty twenty seven. So it was it was really something though to watch the post fight where you have that downtime before Bruce Buffer reads the scorecards. That Katzengano was devastated. You have never seen a um, a fighter's facial expression so accurately summarize what is going on inside of them she was just seemed devastated by this loss and then they read the cards and we've got a split decision they go 29 28 vieta 29 28 zingano and then they go to announce the final scorecard and you don't even realize it till bruce buffer is enunciating that how similar cat and ket sound when you're about to announce the winner but announce ket Lynn Vieta and Zingano knew immediately. She knew she had lost this fight. She was not, she didn't have the big look of shock on her face that are so popular among split decision reads. But K- 
Ketlin Vieta moves up in the UFC's women in the women's bantamweight division and I would say is in a pretty prime spot for a title fight down the road. I don't know if that is her next fight. I think that Amanda Nunez, if it's not Raquel Pennington, it will be Chris Cyborg next for her and that probably takes Ketlin Vieta out of an immediate title fight and probably she will stay active fighting somebody else near the top of that division and I'm just pulling up the UFC rankings here as we look at possible opponents down the road for her so it's been thrown out the idea of Dana White after tonight's main event of going ahead with Chris Cyborg and Amanda Nunez bypassing the proposed Amanda Nunez Raquel Pennington fight if that were to happen I think Ketlin Vieta and Raquel Pennington would make all the sense in the world um, you could do Vieta and Marion Renault after Renault's last win, though I don't know how much of a lateral move that is for Vieta, who just beat Zingano, who is ahead of Renault, and she's beaten Sarah McMahon. So uh, Juliana Pena, she's out out for the time being. Um, Jermaine Durandamy, I mean, uh, that's possible. Um, and then there's Holly Holm. So that's kind of where you're looking at. But for me, Ketlin Vieta, I would imagine it's, it's going to be Holm or Pennington next for her. That would be... To me, what she should be angling for. And if Pennington's taking the next title fight, then maybe Vieta and Holly Holm is the fight to make. Um, If Holm wants to be at bantamweight, she could very well settle in at 145 pounds as well and have that as as a viable option for her uh, moving forward. She's someone that can compete at that division. And the argument is, is she shut out of a title fight at 145 as long as Cyborg is champion? You would think for the time being she is. All right, next up, Andre Orlovsky against Stefan Struve. Andre Orlovsky, 39 years of age. He was coming in to his 25th UFC fight of all time. Overall, man's had, this would be professional fight number 42, had his first UFC fight in November of 2000, if you can believe that. Unbelievable. Interesting stat in this fight was the fact that in his 24 prior UFC fights, he had amassed three takedowns. In this fight alone, he he had, I believe, five takedowns altogether when all was said and done. He had at least five, if not uh, a sixth in this uh, particular fight. But he nearly doubled his entire history in the UFC takedown-wise in one fight. Uh, Arlovsky fought a very smart fight. Was this the most entertaining fight in the world? No, but it was really something to watch. Andre Arlovsky, a patient, strategy-heavy Andre Arlovsky, figure out Stefan Struve, who continues to be the most frustrating heavyweight in history. Everyone looks at this guy who is now nine years into his UFC tenure. I don't think he's ever going to reach the potential people had for this near seven-footer with an 84-and-a-half-inch reach. I just think it's not going to happen. If you're going to have this much trouble with Andre Arlovsky in 2018, I don't know how you can expect anything different. First round, Arlovsky got a takedown into half guard. Let Struve up. He really didn't want to get involved in anything on the ground with Struve, but did have the takedowns there. Like His wrestling was something to watch in this fight, something that Arlovsky um, had never shown at this level before, this ability uh, to take down a guy so much bigger than him and navigate those legs and be able to take him down pretty much at will in this fight. Um, Arlovsky even had a reversal, landing on top of Struve, clinched with him against the fence. He took the first round. Uh, second round, Arlovsky going to that body lock. Really great use of the double underhooks throughout this fight. And Struve uh, ends up 
grabbing Arlovsky for a takedown, and Arlovsky grabs the fence, and it goes unchecked by referee Herb Dean. Rogan explains his theory that any infraction should lead to a point deduction. It's harsh. It can be damaging to the fight. But if you take a point off, anytime a guy grabs a fence, pokes a guy in the eye, hits him low, it would be amazing how many of these fouls would disappear overnight. And he's not wrong. There would still be... um, a transitional period, but I think if we looked, if we started that today, a year from now, there would be significantly less eye pokes, less groin strikes, and less fence grabbing. And I can't say I'm against that. It's a pretty hard line to take in a three round fight where one point can be totally damaging. I mean, in boxing, you lose a point, it's a slap on the wrist. You have 11 other rounds to ensure that the better fighter will win. In MMA, it is not structured as such. Where a three-round fight, you lose a point, it is not a guarantee that the better fighter is going to win that night. And a point deduction could ultimately shift into, at at minimum, a draw. If not, giving up a fight because of a point deduction. Struve did win the second round, I felt. Um, They did get separated off the cage. Arlovsky was also poked in the eye. There were a lot of fouls in this fight, by the way. So I had it even going into the third round. Struve uh, was then poked in the eye in the third. And it was more of like a grazing by the hand of Arlovsky, but enough that the physician had to come in and check. Arlovsky cracked him with this huge right hand. Struve hit him with a leg kick. And then Arlovsky with his double underhooks got a fifth takedown at the end. So I think that was the total was five takedowns in this fight. Very impressive for Andre Arlovsky. And I applauded his game plan here. He did what he needed to win. Um, It wasn't spectacular. But you know what? Andre Arlovsky coming out and throwing bombs is going to lead to him having four consecutive losses in a row, which he's had a pair of those streaks in his career. One is second straight, unanimous decision victory. This was one where all the judges were on the same page. They they just threw their cards in the air like, this dude won. 30-27, 29-28, 29-28, and Arlovsky, God bless the guy, feels he's got a run at the title in him, and this is like the third act, minimum, of his career. When you look at his run, his initial run in the UFC that led to him led to him winning the heavyweight title. Then a couple of years ago, that streak he went on that got him back into the UFC and continued it. And then he went on a huge losing streak. And now he's on the front end of another winning streak, having won two straight. So there, there is no stopping Andre Arlovsky's career in 2018. And it looks like this guy will hit 40 in the UFC. Sean O'Malley versus Andre Sukumtoth. If you followed Embedded this week and you've been following Sean O'Malley since the Dana White Tuesday Night Contender Series, they've got something in Sean O'Malley. I don't know if this guy's going to end up being a top flight bantamweight given the depth at the top of that division. And it's a, a gulf of difference between Andre Sukumtoth and the major players at 135. But Sean O'Malley has something. And he was a lot of fun to watch in this fight. Just so quick with his strikes. Um, he was constantly going for the leg of Sukumtoth and nailed him with a kick. And the, le- the left leg of Sukumtoth buckled. And O'Malley then kicked the leg out from underneath him a second time. Spinning back fist, head fist, uh, head kick combination. And then O'Malley drops him with a right hand, immediately lands a spin kick to the head, and landed more rights before the end of the round. I had a 10-8 Sean O'Malley, even using the old rule set. This was a 10-8 round. And O'Malley, it's not just his speed and precision, it's his follow-up. It's landing the spinning back fist, but then it's turning around with a 
head kick before the guy can even register. And it's the follow-ups that are so key to O'Malley's striking uh, execution. Second round, you've got O'Malley landing from rights and lefts. Uh, Sukumtov takes him down, gets on top. O'Malley then is working for the triangle, and Sukumtov circles his way into the triangle deeper. And Daniel Cormier cannot believe that Sukumtov did this. Goes for an armbar, Sukumtov escapes, gets into side control, and then O'Malley goes for a guillotine off his back, loses it before the end of the round. So I had O'Malley way ahead here going into the third. And O'Malley's corner told him, talk to him. Talk to that motherfucker. Get into his head. O'Malley is mixing up his kicks, but in doing so, he throws a head kick and he injures his foot. Sukumtov takes him down. O'Malley is still able to get up. He cannot put any weight, though, on his right leg. His foot is damaged. Sukumtov takes him down again, goes into side control, and this is again when the announcers are just puzzled at the the ring awareness, the ring, the fight IQ of Sukumtov that here's a guy that cannot stand on his leg. Why are we taking him down? Force him to get onto his feet. Like, you could just destroy this man's leg, forcing him to stand. It was excruciating, and O'Malley was being given this ability to rest and just fight off his back and not put pressure on the injured foot. The corner is even telling Sukumtoth to stand. It ends with Sukumtoth in side control. So, yes, Sukumtoth wins the third round, but on a, on a fight where you had dropped the first two rounds, the first of which was a 10-8 you really have to put into question Sukumtoth's strategy here in the third round. If he recognized the foot injury, I don't know how you couldn't. Like, it was so abundantly clear. He was not hiding this injury. So they go to read the scorecards. O'Malley can't even stand. He's being checked on on his back. And as Bruce Buffer reads the scorecards, he wins the fight by unanimous decision on scores of 29-28 and two 29-27 cards, which is the score I had. And O'Malley starts cheering and celebrating on his back. Joe Rogan gets down on the two knees to interview him, and the dude plugs his after party. This guy is great. He is someone that if his fighting style, which is very fan-friendly, can be effective against top-level competition, he could really be... A star to watch. And that's where the UFC is in 2018. And it's why I love this card going in. Because you had guys like Sean O'Malley. You had guys like Brian Ortega. And even Chris Cyborg, who is kind of not in that same category of rising stars. But marketable stars that Chris Cyborg is starting to show some drawing ability. And we're coming in the wake of the Conor McGregor, Ronda Rousey era. Where you had two blockbuster stars at their zenith in tandem with one another. So now it's, it's looking at who are going to be the new stars. Is, is Israel Adesanya going to be a next star? Maybe. But there's these diamonds in the rough that we're starting to see build some following. And we're going to see. It's like looking at a bunch of blue chip stocks and seeing, okay, we're going to put some money on them. Let's see if these, if these companies explode. Um, maybe. Maybe you're going to find an apple in there. Maybe not. A lot of these people are not going to pan out. But there's some interesting stars, and this card was full of them. So big performance for Sean O'Malley. He remains undefeated, improving to 10-0. Frankie Edgar versus Brian Ortega. Big fight. Had a lot of interest going into this one uh, for myself. And the fight started with Edgar using all of his speed. Uh, 
landing a lot more than Ortega and finishing his combinations. Like he would enter and boom, it was two to three punch combinations. Edgar tried to catch a kick, went for the takedown, and Ortega instantly went for the guillotine that Edgar got away from. So this was going to be contested standing for the the opening duration. Then Ortega, who was very patient as he was eating a lot of Edgar strikes, blasted him with a left elbow, and Edgar is rocked. And Ortega senses this. He starts unloading with uppercuts and drops Frankie with a right uppercut, and he is rocked. Herzog jumps on top of Frankie to stop the follow-up strikes, and Brian Ortega becomes the first individual to stop Frankie Edgar. By KO at 444 of the first round, Brian Ortega improves to 14-0, biggest win of his career, no, no questions asked, and clearly has put himself in line for the next featherweight title shot. There is no other featherweight title fight to make than Max Holloway versus Brian Ortega. And Brian Ortega is... Uh, he is a fighter that has, first of all, this is a guy who had a drug test failure a number of years ago, and it's something that could have been held against him, but I feel that these performances, it happened so early in his UFC career that I think he has kind of paid the penance for that, and it's not this cloud that hangs over top him that other fighters have. I would be curious how many people watching this were even aware of the draw standalone failure he had those years ago, but... After beating Hanato Moicano, Cub Swanson, and now Frankie Edgar, uh, this is certainly the the big name at 145 pounds that people are interested in. And Max Holloway, he's another one of those guys that I would love to see a pay-per-view headlined by these two to see if they can crack 250, if they can hit 300,000. Um, that's the featherweight fight to make. I would love to see it on a card where um, they're... They're stacked with a second big fight on top of it because that's what you want on these pay-per-views. When you have a Max Holloway and Brian Ortega that are right near the cusp, but they're not quite there as being able to carry their own pay-per-view, give them some muscle. Give them every advantage possible. So Frankie Edgar, um, he got a lot of praise from people after this fight, in particular from Conor McGregor and from Max Holloway publicly about taking this fight, showcasing um, just so much heart. I mean, Frankie Edgar will be a future Hall of Famer, and this was, um, I don't want to say a changing of the guard, but that's what this fight was kind of promoted as, and that was kind of the outcome you were left with. Brian Ortega not only beat Frankie Edgar, he stopped Frankie Edgar, so a statement victory, and again, Max Holloway and Brian Ortega, that is the only fight you can make at 145 pounds, in my opinion. Even with Conor McGregor looming, as he can, I mean, he can disrupt any title plans, but I really hope we see Max Holloway and Brian Ortega next. Main event was Chris Cyborg, Justino, and Yana Kunitskaya. And fight began with Cyborg landing a combination, and Yana just goes for a low single leg and gets on top of Cyborg. Uh, Kunitskaya is on her back, standing. Justino shakes her off, and then Cyborg lands with a knee to the body, and then Cyborg takes over. She's landing with her right hands in high frequency, drops her by the fence, and gets on top, landing hammer fist after hammer fist, and the fight is stopped at 325 of the first round. Chris Cyborg improves to 20-1, and retains her UFC women's featherweight title in pretty dominant fashion. I mean, credit to Yana Kunitskaya for taking this fight. She was a plus 800 underdog. It, this would have been the biggest upset in UFC history, in my opinion, I think this would have trumped uh, George St. Pierre and Matt Serra. I think this would have 
trumped uh, I think it definitely would have trumped Ronda Rousey Holly Holm uh this to me was would have been the biggest upset and I just didn't think there was a prayer of it happening you never know in mixed martial arts as they say but a strong fight for Cyborg and she wants Amanda Nunez next that is clearly what she wants and could be the fight that happens next Dana White said that is the fight to make and we'll see Everyone was expecting Amanda Nunez to fight Raquel Pennington in Brazil in May. Uh, We'll see if that happens or not. Cyborg wants to fight Nunez, and that is the bigger fight. And it'll put two divisions on hold, but it's not as though either division has a big fight that you're holding up. Um, Amanda Nunez and Raquel Pennington, like that's not a big title fight. It's not like Raquel Pennington has been been going on this incredible run that I would have much more um, issue if... and. Like, let's put put out there, okay? Conor McGregor decides he wants to come back to fight Max Holloway, which would be surprising to see him come back for that fight above other options. But let's just, for the sake of it, you can understand why the UFC would make that fight. It is bigger than Max Holloway and Brian Ortega. But it's also, that's a featherweight fight in Ortega that you want to see very badly. I don't think people are dying to see Amanda Nunez, Raquel Pennington. And at featherweight, we've got nothing. We have got nothing for Chris Cyborg in the loneliest division in the UFC's history. So that could be where they go next. Very, uh, I would say there were some very strange scorecards on this uh, card. As I mentioned, five split decisions. Probably the most egregious being the Adelaide Bird card for Ashley Yoder. Uh, Also... They promoted very heavily UFC 223 with some great promos for the two title fights on that card with Rose Namajunas and Joanna Janjacek in their rematch for the women's strawweight title and for Tony Ferguson and Habib Nurmagomedov, which I will believe that fight is happening when they walk into the arena that night during their entrances. So that's a big one-two punch for 223. Uh, and I want to end the, uh, this show off uh, by talking about uh, the passing of longtime UFC producer uh, Bruce Connell, who died the day before the card on Saturday night. This is someone who had been with the UFC since 1998. They had mentioned he produced over 300 cards, beginning with UFC 17. Um, they, they did such an incredible tribute to him at the start of the pay-per-view where it was a video package voiced over by Joe Rogan who would have known this guy since right through, since he started with the UFC. And it ended with, um, with a countdown to the show and it was just such a touching tribute to Bruce Connell. And then John Anik... Daniel Cormier and Joe Rogan spoke about him at the start of the pay-per-view. Joe Rogan was about to burst into tears talking about him. And these guys, I I give them all the credit in the world. Like, I was choking up watching this. And they had to continue with this broadcast that I can't imagine how difficult it would have been. That you have this familiar voice in your head all night long. Your producer forever. And to go under these circumstances, uh, I, I thought that they did such a great tribute Uh to Bruce Connell on this show. And in many ways, that that was the best part of this show was that tribute. That's going to wrap up the show. So thank you, everyone, uh, for tuning in. I know this was a day late. I did want to have this up Saturday night. So I uh, hope you still got to check it out. Way and I will be back on Monday night following Raw with Rewind to Raw. And then Tuesday, we've got two shows coming your way. Tuesday afternoon, we will have a Patreon exclusive 
reviewing the 46th anniversary card from New Japan Pro Wrestling, which is headlined by Kazuchika Okada and Will Ospreay, and Togi Makabe challenging Minoru Suzuki for the Intercontinental title. So look for that Tuesday afternoon if you are a Patreon subscriber. $6 a month gets you access to all of our bonus shows. We do a minimum one bonus show per week. Sometimes we do more. This week we'll be doing two bonus shows. So sign up at postwrestlingcafe.com and you'll get that bonus show Tuesday afternoon. Tuesday night, we will have Rewind to SmackDown for everybody. And our Rewind Away show is coming out Friday for patron subscribers. This week, we are reviewing WrestleMania 20 from 2004. So keep it locked at postwrestling.com. You can follow us at postwrestling. And thanks for joining us, everyone. And we'll speak with you on Monday night.